Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, July 20th. We begin with a look ahead to today's City Council vote on making masks mandatory on transit and indoor public places. We catch up with Matthew Conrad, Global Calgary's social host. Next, we get the latest on Saturday's deadly motor coach rollover at the Columbia Ice Fields. Global reporter Adam Toy joins us with details on the ongoing investigation. With City Hall's public hearings on systemic racism now two weeks behind us, where do we go from here? We speak with Ward 9 councillor Giancarlo Carra on the action plan moving ahead. It's some good news surrounding COVID-19, an increase in the survival rate among those infected. We get the details on a newly released study from Dr. Ted Jablonski. And finally, nature's calling, but there's nowhere to answer. We speak with an author who says we need to make public toilets a number one issue, a problem which has been highlighted due to the pandemic. Calgary City Council will vote today on whether to join other major Canadian cities in making masks mandatory on transit and in indoor public places. Joining us now, Global Social host Matthew Conrad. Hi, Matt. Good morning, guys. Happy Monday. How are you today? Happy Monday to you. We are good. We're not wearing masks, but uh, (laughs) maybe we will be soon enough. What do we know about today's vote? So today it's expected that uh, there's going to be a recommendation made to have uh, uh, masks, uh, face masks and uh, protective uh, face coverings uh, be mandatory on uh, transit. So that's the first step. Other Canadian cities, they've uh, made it mandatory that you've got to wear them in indoor public spaces. So Calgary isn't there just yet. So today is just sort of perhaps the first domino to fall and maybe eventually having a mask be worn at the indoor public spaces. Uh, Mayor Nenshi, he's been obviously very uh, vocal on this topic over the last couple of weeks. He had recently said that if doesn't see enough uh, Calgarians uh, wearing them, particularly on uh, transit or just in general, that this is going to be something that he was going to do. So this isn't exactly unexpected that this is going to be happening today. And, uh, of course, there was rallies held outside the City Hall yesterday saying from anti-mask rallies. And then I spoke to a number of people uh, last week on uh, 17th Ave while they were out and about, and many of them wearing masks. And uh, so a lot of people seem to be in favor of this. But, again, there's going to be, of course, a large amount of people that, that, don't, uh, that don't think the city should look at doing something like this. Matthew, the, the vote is today, and uh, let's say, for example, it is a yay vote, and masks are uh, decided to be to be mandatory on transit. Do we have any idea what kind of a time frame that that would be in place for? No. So Mayor Nenshi, again, he he joins our our show uh, uh, around eight o'clock every uh, Wednesday or Thursday. So he was on our show last week talking about this. So right now, it just sounds like this is going to be the recommendation that's going to be made, and then after that, it sounds like they'll figure out how to actually enforce that and sort of installed as a rule and passed that bylaw. And then after that, depending on uh, how the transmission uh, rates uh, vary over the next couple of weeks or months, and um, if the cases go down, obviously they've been sort of uh, rising in the last couple of weeks, which is obviously some concern. So I think that's why there's uh, at least talk that this could be expanded to include uh, indoor public spaces because the weather is going to eventually start to cool down. More people are going to be spending more time indoors. And that's when that we might need to start talking about to having people wear them while they're inside shopping or grocery stores or shopping centers and things like that. So today it's just uh, figuring out uh, how people, other councillors feel about uh, making it mandatory and then uh, whether or not it's uh, passed and we join other Canadian cities. And we'll find out likely more about how it's going to be uh, enforced. And that, like you say, I mean, then she's just one voice. It has to go before council and they have to come up whether they're going to put a bylaw out forward or not. Is there any word? Is this just if it was? indoors so transit is one issue if, if there's a, a, a mandatory mask indoors is this just city-run facilities so that's what he said last week is that yeah. they're going to start with transit and then he's also alluded to that the next thing the next if they're going into indoor public spaces that they will be city-owned facilities right. so libraries for instance right so 
that's when the topic of getting into shopping centers, small places where there's going to be more people that aren't owned by the city, that's when that topic or that conversation will be had maybe later on this summer, closer to the fall when things start to cool down, when people are spending less time outdoors, because right now, obviously, you're spending time outdoors. Maybe there isn't as much of a concern to wear a face mask, but, you know, you still see plenty of people wearing them, whether they're, you know, walking on Stephen Ave or, or 17th Ave. That's where I sort of caught up with a handful of people last week to get their opinion on this. So even if you're, you're not in a situation where uh, it's a concern if you're, of your physical distancing, if you've got that six or two meters or six feet away from someone, there's still lots of people wearing them. So certainly, I guess, another bridge that uh, will at least uh, debate crossing uh, one of these days soon. And I guess if you don't like it, you don't have to go to a city-run facility, right? I mean, exactly. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you want, if you don't like the mask rule, then maybe these are these are places that you're not going to have to visit if you don't want to uh, wear a mask inside, then you, I guess you're going to have to avoid going to those places where those rules in place. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't take public transit, if you drive to and from work or wherever you need to go, then this really isn't much of a concern for you right now. But if you're someone who uh, doesn't wear a mask and you take uh, the seat train or buses uh, to and from work, then this is obviously going to uh, affect your, your day-to-day and you'll have to go out there and, and get yourself a face mask. But they're quite readily available. So mm-hmm. it's yep. not uh, it's, uh, that's not, not an excuse for people not to have them, but they can't have access to them, right? Thanks for your time this morning, Matthew. We appreciate it. That is Matthew Conrad, Global's social host. 7.49 on the morning news. Three people are confirmed dead with another 14 critically injured after a motor coach vehicle rolled over near the Columbia Icefield Discovery Centre on Saturday. Global reporter Adam Toy is on the scene this morning. Good morning to you, Adam. Good morning. Adam, can you fill us in with any new details on this situation? Uh, so yesterday, uh, our Jasper RCMP uh, confirmed that uh, this investigation is very much in its early stages. Um, I, I'm actually just sitting outside of the road into the Columbia Ice Field, and uh, it looks like uh, investigation crews and are just pulling in uh, now as we speak. So uh, I expect that they need to. They will be. Lo- getting uh, to do some work that they need to do uh, the challenge here is 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 many uh, one you've got yourself uh, a what's basically a tour bus with monster truck wheels on its roof uh, and it's also stuck on uh, on, a, on a slope that has shale on it so safety in extracting that vehicle is the number one priority for the crews when they actually get to work. Uh, second challenge is, uh, of course, uh, you know, identifying uh, the next kin, which RCMP are doing, uh, and also uh, trying to figure out what happened uh, here that caused this Ice Explorer coach to uh, overturn. Adam, does, do you know, can you see, does it look like the hill gave way, or does it look like the bus just went over the hill of its own accord, or can you tell at this point? I mean, I know the investigation's ongoing, but from what you see... Yeah, so that's a difficult thing to to, to say because it's uh, the 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 vantage the vantage point that I have uh, is is at some distance. The uh, you know if, if for anybody who's been here to the Columbia Ice Fields, uh, they'll know that there's Highway 93 that uh, it, that the the Athabasca Glacier, which is where this uh, vehicle is uh, currently sitting, uh, the so, so the glacier is on one side of Highway 93. The Discovery Center and the parking lot is on the other side. I'm at the, the parking lot, and it's it is difficult to tell. Um, some other photos that I've seen, uh, it, it doesn't say that it doesn't look like it was a, cat- a catastrophic uh, giving way of the roads. But also the per- the president of Pursuit, um, uh, he yesterday af- uh, afternoon he said 
that he has crews out there uh, every single day, uh, you know, monitoring the condition of the road because they're, uh, you know, part of the service that they provide is to make sure that it's a smooth ride for anybody who's on these ice explorers when they do go up there. Adam, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That is global reporter Adam Toy. It's 8.12 now, and anti-racism will be discussed at City Council today after three days earlier of public hearings on systemic racism. But it could take up to a year for any sort of action to take place. So why is that, and, and what will the next steps be to discuss? We're joined by the chair of the committee, Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us again. So, I mean, we, we checked in with you after the, the three days that, that were held on systemic racism and the, the, the statements and the, the accounts that were presented by Calgarians. So what do you do next, Councillor? And what, what are the next steps and, and how long might it take to, to see any concrete evidence of this? Well, we're going to see some action before a year, but it's at a year point when the work's been done that we get the report back. So just to sort of wrap up, uh, we finished the three days of hearing on the 9th of July, and uh, we started with a a Siksika Blackfoot uh, smudge to start things in a good way. And we asked the Good Eagles to come back today after we vote on the recommendations to close things and sort of close that loop. And that happens at 5 o'clock tonight, where the evolved recommendations coming out of all of that work Uh, go before council to actually become official marching orders. Uh, The first one is that we acknowledge, recognize, and condemn the systemic racism that exists in our community. And that was a a recommendation that was placed onto onto the docket by Councillor Collie Urquhart following the three days. And it's a pretty big statement because... um, you know, up until that point, we were avoiding terms like systemic racism. And after three days, it's very clear that 36% of Calgarians who are who are people of color uh, experience a much different uh, city and a much different life than, than mm-hmm. those of us who have the privilege uh, of, of being in the white majority. And so we're making that acknowledgement up front. We're reaffirming our commitment to the actions directed in the notice of motion, which include uh, the police coming back to us and having a big discussion with us about that. And we've said that has to happen by September 30th. Uh, We are approving the Anti-Racism Action Committee Terms of Reference, and that committee comes into existence in October when we establish all of our boards and commissions. Uh, And and the the terms of reference for that really talk about... uh, drawing a a broad cross-section of the community forward and then giving them significant uh, capacity to to really weigh in on what it is that we're doing. Uh, We've directed that the What We Heard report comes from uh, the three days and and informs everything that we do and that the the committee does on on a move-forward basis. Uh, We direct that the Anti-Racism Committee come back to us uh, in a year uh, to to sort of make sure that, that they're fully, you know, their feet are underneath them and that, and that there's an official line of sight and they're, and they're doing work and that work is supported by council. And then uh, we've approved or we're approving an anti-racism capacity building fund. Uh, and that's about almost $600,000, about 250000 from the city. We've got partners in the community, uh, the United Way, CADA, uh, Canadian Heritage, and, and we're putting about six hundred. 
$100,000 into the community to bolster uh, the anti-racism work that's already taking place at the grassroots level. And so that's really the, the, the work plan, and uh, I feel good about it. And, uh, you know, it's important that uh, after listening, we transition to action, and, and this, mm-hmm. is, this is a lot of work that does that. Well, when you put it in those terms, it's not going to be ready tomorrow because there are a lot of moving parts. And I'm guessing that it's a, a case that you want to get it right as you move ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, we our, our terms of reference were uh, a little bit more open-ended going into the hearing. Uh, our, and our, and our, uh, our work order was a little bit more open-ended. And we wanted to keep it open-ended because we didn't have, want to have it pre-baked before we spent three days listening to Calgarians. And so these are... These are ter- these are these are action items that that are evolved from from listening and uh, and and worked through with the community, and uh, we've all got a lot of work to do. Action is key, and I'm glad to hear you've got a long list of things that you'll be following up on. Thanks for the uh, update, Giancarlo. Appreciate your well, time. Thank you. Talk to you guys later. You betcha. Thanks. That's Giancarlo Carra, Ward Nine City Councilor. Coming up to uh, 719 on the morning news. Even as new coronavirus cases uh, soar in the U.S. A new study offers one piece of good news. Severely ill COVID-19 patients are significantly more likely to survive now compared to even a few months ago. With details on this study, we are joined by our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. So what's behind this new trend? It's kind of counterintuitive. We have more cases, and when we look at the U.S., they're just flaring. Uh, But, of course, it looks like it's uh, it's good news for those people who who are ill. They have a better survival rate. Yeah, so this is this is all essentially a learning curve. Uh, the initial data coming out of China was absolutely dismal. That if you ended up in ICU, you were highly, highly likely to to die. You would not make it out. As time has gone on, that stat has gone down to uh, about sixty percent uh, survival. Uh, and that was in. Um, uh, I guess in Feb- uh, in March, April, you know, early in, and then now when you, you look at the end of May and a lot more, forty-two percent. So we've we've improved by about a third, but there's still a forty-two percent uh, death rate if you end up in ICU. So it's again, we've had so many good news, bad news stories. This is just the, still another one, but it's all about learning. The more patients you see, the the way you see the disease. Uh, affect the human body, the more you learn, the more you know how you can work around it and get people better. Dr. J, Andrew and I both, uh, we've got a friend who was in ICU and on a ventilator yeah. for many days, and they gave him a less than 10% chance to survive. Now, he did make it. and yeah. But we know from him and from other stories and other people we've interviewed, even when you do survive it, the, the lasting effects are very damaging on your body. But as you say, it is good news to know that our survival rate is, is definitely increasing. No, absolutely. So the stats for how long uh, the stay will be in ICU are incredibly long which is a little bit different than other things. So, I mean, the, the quoted status is at 28 days, uh, 20% are still in ICU. So wow. the friend you know about, uh, you know, the longer the stay, that's a very common story. And there's uh, typically people coming out of that experience have permanent damage of, of something. So you don't, you don't escape this. Yes, you survive, but uh, there are long-lasting you know, scar tissue, whether that be in the lung or the cardiovascular system. So this is a nasty, nasty illness. Um, and it's good that we're making progress. It's good we're figuring out new cocktails that work when you end up being severely ill. But this is still something that um, 
Uh, you don't want to end up that severely ill. You do not want to end up in ICU. Mm-hmm. COVID-19 front row and center for all of us across the globe. And so we are learning about it as the general public, maybe um, obviously not paying as much attention to this as we would have with other new viruses because of the, uh, you know, huge breadth and spread across the globe. So we're, I'm wondering, is this normal in the uh, you know medical community, new to us, that we learn and it's like the pieces of the puzzle every week in every case? Well, I think in the medical community, this is how it is. This is uh, day-to-day medicine, I think, to some degree. Uh, so, yes, I think the, the general population is learning how the scientific medical community works. Um, we're presented with a new problem. We try to solve it. Uh, sometimes it's, it's very quick and easy, and sometimes it's exceeding difficult. We try to look at the best data we have. We try to amalgamate data, accumulate. Uh, in this case, it's global. You know, ICUs from around the world are working together. If one if one ICU finds something that's working, that that has been communicated. Um, so that's perhaps what's different that this is at a scale and happening in real time. But this is the science of medicine. This is how it works, actually. Doctor J, I'm curious. Uh, you know, before we let you go, you talked about the word quick. Are you uh, are you feeling positive about a, a quick vaccine, or or do you think that we're you know that's wishful thinking to think we might have it within a year? Yeah, I, well, within a year, here's hoping, right? The, the quote was, uh, I mean, even a few year, uh, a few months ago, that they would hope that if they would have it in a year. Uh, I think it's wishful thinking that it's any time in the next few months. The studies are just not at far enough. They're moving, uh, they're moving forward, and we're now in fa- well, so-called phase three studies, which is very good. That's a, that's a good movement or progression. But these studies haven't shown that anything's worked yet. So phase three means we're not killing people by giving them a vaccine, but it doesn't mean that it actually works and that it's uh, effective for the, the virus we have. So we are still, unfortunately, months and months away, I would think, of seeing a real vaccine. Thanks for joining us this morning, Dr. J. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Dozens of companies have stopped advertising with Facebook and its associated companies saying they're not doing enough to stop the spread of hate and racism online. New Ipsos polling shows Canadians support even more action and regulation on this front. Joining us with a breakdown of the numbers is Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker. Hi, Daryl. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this should be a no-brainer, and apparently it is for most of us. We want social media companies to work harder to stop these hate posts, correct? Yeah, we really do. And, you know, when this first started off back in the in the 90s, when we really started picking up on things like social media uh, and, and basically the, 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 the digital world, People had this view that it was kind of like a, you know, an, an open forum that you could basically do whatever you wanted, and unfortunately, it's gone in a direction where the where it's become toxic, and people really do want to see control. So the numbers are are pretty good when it comes to, uh, uh, I guess, the actual quote is social media companies should be required to even inform police about messages that spread hate or racism. So they really want a responsibility to take this information to the authorities, and Canadians come out big time. Yeah, 83%. And you don't get Canadian, 83% of Canadians agreeing on very much these days, uh, other than maybe some measures on COVID. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, we're, we tend to be fairly divided on, on many issues, but on, on this one, uh, Canadians are pretty united. Daryl, can you break down some more of the numbers? It's a, a vast number of Canadians that you polled on this one. So what did you find? 
Uh, social media companies should do more to, to block hate and racism. 88% of us agree with that. They support companies that uh, want to limit their online media ads due to hate and racism, 82%, which is something that we've been seeing coming out from some, some big corporations, them trying yeah. to put pressure on, uh, on social media companies to, uh, to clean up their act. Uh, but we do have a, a, a sub- substantial minority, significant minority, about 34% of us saying they should be able to do whatever they want online. Interestingly enough, among the people who are most concerned about what happens online are the people who want to have the most freedom on you online, which are the younger people. <laughs> That's wow. kind of weird. That does, does seem a little on the bizarre side. The other uh, thing that stood out to me was the taxation of uh, and regulation of social media companies. Uh, apparently there's a huge contingent who want to see some changes there and actually tax them in our nation. Yeah, 81% of us want to see that. Now, interestingly, when you ask that at a superficial level, everybody agrees that somebody else should be paying taxes. But if you told them <laughs> that what it would mean is that you have to pay more money for doing the other things that you want to do because that tax is going to be passed through, although we didn't test it, my, my suspicion is you'd see that number close up pretty quick. Or or if, uh, if Canadians were told, okay, we're going to tax them, but as a result, you're going to have a monthly fee for your Facebook, your Instagram, or your social media favorites. Yeah, exactly. So um, superficial, um, you know, initial going in, strong support for uh, taxing social media companies, but not really thinking through the implications of that. And also, it come down, comes down to heavy, heavy regulation. And we actually use the term heavy regulation. 77% of us agree that that uh, should happen uh, regarding social media companies. You talked a little bit about some of the younger demographics. Did, uh, did you break, can you break down the poll a little bit for us in terms of age groups and who were supportive of you know, you know, be, clamping down on hate speech online and, and who wasn't? Well, the older you are, the more supportive you are of clamping down on things. So it's, you know, stopping those crazy kids and all those terrible things that they're doing, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, the general population being the, the, the issue here. So, uh, yeah, older people have more difficulty with it. And interestingly, um, men have more difficulty with it. Oh, wow. Interesting. Battle of the sexes. A lot of them, you know, think that they should be responsible for completely shutting down these accounts. And, of course, uh, it's mandated by the government. And uh, I, I'm wondering if you know uh, from your research if, if they think it should be more of a governmental thing or more of the responsibility of these social media uh, lords, if you will. I think it's actually everybody involved. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the social media companies themselves. Government is oversight and making sure that things are happening properly. But also, uh, when it comes to the actual content, the users themselves uh, somehow need to be uh, more, I uh, would say, governed by the process. So even people who are free speech advocates, they only constitute about a third of the population. So people recognize that there's a problem. They want to see it fixed. They see government and the companies themselves, plus the people who advertise on those platforms as being responsible for cleaning this up. I'm glad to see that most Canadians are on board with all of that. Thank you for joining us, Daryl. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. It's interesting. Yeah, we want those changes. Mm -hmm. You know, we we want something to be staunch, but like he said, the implications if you're if you're overtaxing and the responsibility, how much of it is? That, that's my big question. I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. These are private companies, so to a certain extent, and I'm I'm less government guy, but uh, to a certain extent, they should be able to police themselves. But if they're not getting it done, does the government stop step in? But if the government steps in, that could af- affect free speech, not racist speech, not hate speech. But it's a fine well, it line. It is a fine line, but I think you have to be careful. And I, I mean, I'm no computer expert. I don't know how they would do that. But, you know, there's got to be keywords, I'm sure, that they can put in place when, when those keywords pop up, that, that post comes down. 
I mean, I think we just have to be far more responsible. You know, the company we work for, if, you know, if, if we do something that represents them poorly, we face the consequences, right? I mean, I think that's... In every private company, that's the case. That's the way it is these days. And we've seen that happen in, in various incidents. So I think you have to be careful. You have to be aware and you have to do the best that you can do and, and not just go, oh, well, people can police themselves because there's so much on social media right now. We depend on social media so much that when that crap is posted all over the place, you know, there has to be some yeah. sort of safeguard that, it, you know, allows it to be pulled down. And I don't know what kind of an algorithm you could, you could look at because I know that I've read people's posts that have uh, the F word and have uh, all sorts of curse yeah. words. So apparently those aren't pulled automatically. No. I don't want to see those. So a lot of the times, particularly if, if someone is using that kind of language, you know, en masse or just completely talking about their ex or their neighbor or a store well, in a negative just, then I then I posting I, your your dirty laundry yeah. on social media is useless right? I self edit and I'll block those yeah, people me too but, but is there an algorithm that can really sense be. no but I mean when the, you have there are certain words that once those appear on social media boom they're pulled down automatically and that profile gets blocked yeah well I think they should have a greater responsibility from the company standpoint because I don't want one more area where Big brother has to watch us not so much Big Brother, but if they have these stipulations set up within the social media realm, they should be able to pull you. But it, I think it is their responsibility, but also it's your responsibility because if you and see report something, it. report it. 100%. And that's how we can do this because you can't expect the government or some safety net out there for us. And we all have to stand up for it, uh, stand up against it for sure. Absolutely. Here's a text in. We are making the same mistakes again. A friend of mine's German relative who lived through the Nazi regime said along the lines of this that we never thought we were doing wrong either. Yeah. So when you see it, you have to step up and speak out and make sure that others around you speak out as well. And, and we don't allow that to continue. We don't make the same mistakes we've made in the past. But there's also this other side that says, OK, you're going to be a tattletale. You're a snitch. If, oh, well. it, if, if it's clearly hate, if it's clearly racism, yeah, you have to. Yeah. And, 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 and nobody and, can tell when you snitched on Facebook. No, you know, no. They don't know. Nobody knows you're a snitch. You snitch to Facebook all you like. Back in the day, you'd have to call the police department and leave your name. It wouldn't be a rando thing, right? Uh, but now it is completely random and you can make the difference. So there you have it. And Canadians, again, according to Daryl Bricker from Ipsos, really have some strong opinions. It is the morning news on 770 CHQR. Incentives could encourage more Canadians, especially younger Canadians, to embrace COVID-19 safety measures and social marketing could be how it happens. We're joined by Assistant Professor of Marketing at Queen's University, Monica Labarge. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time this morning. Explain this to us. Social marketing could push people in the right direction when it comes to the pandemic. How, how does this work? I think uh, social marketing is an idea that's been around since the 70s, and then unfortunately, you know, Facebook and social media came along, and the idea sort of got lost in the, the same term. But social marketing is the idea that you um, take a marketing approach to trying to sell social, uh, you know, pro-social behaviors. So one of the first articles about this was called uh, Selling Brotherhood Like Soap. But the idea was that you look at, you know, who your target audience is and try and figure out what you know about them, and you try and price and uh, distribute these, you know, these ideas um, in the same way as marketers would. <clears throat> so it's been used for things like uh, condom use and reducing, you know, uh, getting people to recycle, reducing water usage and, you know, watering your lawns and things like that. And we think that... Um, 
are, you know, we're, we're not trying to criticize uh, our public health department because I think this is uncharted territory for everybody. But we do think there are maybe some messages that are missing the mark and that maybe they could uh, take a slightly different approach to try and figure out how to reach people who are not really being reached by these messages um, by using a social marketing approach. Okay, so Monica, we know younger people are now, we're seeing the numbers start to, to climb in that age group. So can you give us an example of social marketing to that you know, group of, of our population then? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of, the, one of the things that has been, that our public health people have been saying since the beginning is to stay home. Well, there's a lot of people for whom that's really, they don't want to stay home. And so, you know, you have to figure out why is it that they don't want to stay home? Is it because they feel isolated? Okay, so if they feel isolated, then what, could, what are things that they could do to feel less isolated so that you actively try and identify what are the barriers that they have towards doing the thing that you want? Um, so with, with young people, it's they want to congregate somehow, right? So instead of saying, stay home, don't go out, you could say, get together in a park six feet apart, and you give them ideas for some mm-hmm. of the things that are going to accomplish the thing that they want, which is, you know, going out and being together, but doing it in a safe way. I see. And so you're sort of getting at what is it that they want out of this, you know, out of not doing the thing you want, try and figure out how, you, how they can do it in a safe way and communicate that to them so that they're not just left to their own devices to try and figure out the safest quote-unquote way to do it and maybe they're not necessarily achieving that goal so aside from options monica would it be safe to say that you're getting people to do the right thing without telling them to do the right thing to a certain extent yeah i mean i think um there's been some really interesting research uh out about how female leaders around the world seem to be having a lot more success um in this pandemic because they're sort of being a lot more empathetic. So instead of saying, you know, I mean, I, I love if you look at Andrew Cuomo in New York, he's he's pretty, you know, hard, hard talking. And I, I think he's pretty entertaining, but he's like, you're going to do what I say. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not necessarily going to work for everybody. I think, you know, being more empathetic and saying, we know that you're missing out on this thing. We know this is what you really want to do. We're, re- you know, it's terrible that this is happening and sort of being more, um, you know, demonstrating that you understand why people don't want to do what it is that you want to do instead of just saying, do what I tell you to do, because I think there's a lot of people who react really poorly to that. <laughs> Anyone who's a parent and is listening is, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hello. So so this is sort of almost a way of, you know, reverse psychology, you know, using that kind of concept on young people, your kids or whatever. So is that is that kind of the concept? Um, well, it's not so much reverse psychology, but just understanding their psychology. What, like, what is it that they're actually, what is it that they're, what is the reason why they're not doing what it is that you hope to do and try and tap into other ways that they can fulfill that same need or that same desire in a way that's safe for them and for everybody else. Turning uh, things around, you know, health-wise, when it comes to, uh, you know, getting on a fitness, uh, you know, regime and uh, getting healthy, that can be a daunting task for many of us. But in the article that, uh, you know, you're quoted in on theconversation.com, a great example of participation. Can you give us the, the tie between participation yeah. and this sort of a message and how we could maybe apply that to COVID? So, I mean, participation, um, I think, is one of the best examples around of using social marketing. So, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, it was, you know, you need to get out and exercise. Um, and exercise was sort of like... 
to work, right? Like you had to go to the gym and work out, or you had to run really hard, or you had to cross-country ski. And, and participation really did a good job of breaking down exercise into, hey, you can do it with a friend. You can do it walking. You don't have to necessarily be running. You can do it in small, you know, bursts throughout the day. Gardening counted, you know, climbing stairs and all those things so that it didn't be – it wasn't this like, oh, I have to buy a gym membership and go and – go to one of these classes and be tortured and look at everybody else and sweating on the trail. So, you know, this thing that people didn't necessarily really want to do, they broke it down and said, why is it that people aren't, aren't engaging in physical activity? And the reason was that people felt, thought it was too hard. Okay, so then how can we make it easier? And so that was really, you know, their approach. So with respect to COVID, you know, I mean, the, the example that I've, that I've seen since the beginning is, you know, stay home, stay safe. Well, people don't want to stay home, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and we look at, you know, some of the, some of the communication from uh, Dr. Henry in, in BC, and she said, no, go outside. It's okay to go outside, right? So this message of stay home, and people thought, well, I'm supposed to be hiding in my basement. Well, no, you can go outside for a walk. In fact, that might be really good for you. Um, and so being a little bit more nuanced, um, you know, I think uh, people People sort of like to, to revert to these slogans, which can be entertaining from an advertising perspective, but may not necessarily convey all the information that you want to. So I think maybe that was a bit of a misstep because now we're, evol- we're trying to evolve from this stay home when we were locked down. And, and what does that change into? You know, here in Kingston, it's shop local, stay safe. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> How is shopping How's that work? to help me stay safe? This doesn't make any sense, you know. So, um, so it's sort of, uh, and I understand they were all working under a really, you know, tight time pressure. But I think that trying to figure out again what is the reason why people don't want to do what it is that you want to do, and and attacking that from the beginning and saying here are some alternatives. And you know, you mentioned in the article, or it talks about as well, you know, incentives or loyalty programs. And can this work for individuals and for companies as you look at sort of both sides of this? Yeah. So um, one of the there's a I don't think it ever rolled out in Alberta, but it was big in BC and Ontario and Newfoundland. There was an app called Carrot um, Carrot Rewards or uh, Carrot, I guess, uh, and um, they were giving people. Um, loyalty points that they already, for programs they already belong to, so Aeroplan, uh, Scene, and Petro points, and then there's a grocery uh, store chain in BC as well. And you would engage in these little quizzes, which were sort of like five to seven, you know, questions. They were pretty fun. Um, regardless of whether you got the, the answer right or not, they would give you a little bit more information after your sort of multiple choice. So it was a really um, engaging way to get people information that they wouldn't necessarily choose to get otherwise, and that it was a little bit too complicated to put out on a billboard, for example. And so um, some public health departments around the, the provinces and uh, the national level said, well, why don't we try this to see if we can get um, people more information? And it worked really well. There was a huge number of engaged users, which with an app is really hard. But, um, you know, this, this incentive of I get five or ten points for just reading this information um, really worked to convey a lot, of, mm. uh, a lot of stuff that people wouldn't otherwise have read. Great idea. Monica, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. That is Monica Labarge, Assistant Professor of Marketing, Queen's University. 909 now, and the reality is, yes, we all go to the bathroom, but a lot of cities are failing at providing accessible public toilets for the masses. How has the pandemic highlighted the need for accessible public washrooms? We're joined this morning by Leslie Lowe, author of No Place to Go, How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs. Good morning, Leslie. 
Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So how, how has the pandemic highlighted this or is it just, you know, bringing it to light and it's always been an issue not having enough public bathrooms? Well, it's definitely always been an issue. Now is a really interesting, and I guess if you're a toilet public toilet researcher like me, kind of exciting <laughs> time um, because it's really exposing the kind of foundational problems we have with public bathroom access in Canada. We've had some experiments here in the city of Calgary, Leslie, in, in some of the major, uh, I guess, shopping districts and parks with automatic and automated washrooms. It, they seem to come and go, or if not, we might mm-hmm. see and know of one or two in the city. Are we alone in the city of Calgary? Are other cities much more progressive? Um, nope. Other cities are definitely not much more progressive. Um, there's sort of um, there are some cities that that put in more toilets and and some cities that put in fewer. But um, by and large, Canada doesn't do a great job. I think during COVID, we've seen some cities like Montreal is a good example and and Halifax, where I am, uh, the city has put in temporary toilets to help deal with COVID. Um, but yeah, the the actual bricks and mortar or even the um, automated public toilets that you see on sidewalks, there are not enough. So I'm confused. How do more public toilets help with what's going on in relation to COVID? Right. So what we're seeing right now is what you have to do is look at bathroom culture in Canada. And I would say North America generally is a a culture, and I read about this in my book, of publicly accessible toilets, not public toilets. And so to disambiguate there, a publicly accessible toilet is a toilet that Um, the public can use, but is essentially a private bathroom. So you think about, you know, the ones that we all use in Tim Hortons or Starbucks or McDonald's or even in public libraries or malls. Those are publicly accessible bathrooms. That's mainly what we have in Canada. What we don't have is a whole bunch of public bathrooms, which is to say on street, available for anybody when they need it and paid for by taxes. Mm -hmm. And those bathrooms would be um, sort of lumped in with all the other things that we know that we need to use our cities safely and well, like stop signs and benches and trash cans and street lights. And our taxes pay for those and we don't give that a second thought because we understand that those are integral parts of using a city, but public bathrooms, it's not the case that we think of them that way. And with COVID, so many stores are shut down or have limited access and those bathrooms, those publicly available bathrooms are closed. And so people are being really kind of, you know, they're left in a lurch. Mm. So those options in the past because of COVID, they have their washrooms closed. And so we're really seeing this, you know, uh, you know, be more of an issue at this point. Let's talk about the, we talked about how Calgary stacks up across the nation. How about other nations? Are, are we behind it? Do uh, uh, countries overseas, such as in Europe, ha- have uh, better options for those people who need to use the bathroom? Yeah, so there are. Uh, there's a different sort of setup. If you look at, for example, I'm, I'll narrow in on the UK. In the UK, there has been, since you know, the late 19th century, a push to have public toilets, those on-street bathrooms that are available for everybody. That was a really kind of big Victorian um, uh, sentiment that that hygiene would be provided for the masses. Um, So those toilets still exist over there, but what's happening is they're closing because they're, many of them are underground. They're subterranean toilets, and a lot of listeners will have seen them if they've traveled. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a railing above ground. You go down. They're really challenging to, to make those accessible for people who use mobility devices. So some of those are closing down because they're costly. Um, 
and so that that provision is on the wane. Um, but there are in other countries. You think about you know other European countries. There are um, toilets that you may pay for on street. You know you put in you put in a coin or a certain amount of money. You can use the toilet. Um, there are more of those, and that's a positive because it means people have somewhere to go. Um, it's not great. I I'm I'm really advocate for the idea that. You know, if I expect a street light will be provided because it needs to keep the street and the sidewalk safe, um, I think a bathroom is a really, really fundamental part of using a city. And I think that that is something that our municipalities should be stepping up and providing, particularly because every municipal planning strategy that I read, every, every you know, aging in place strategy I read, it talks about livability and people wanting to stay in their homes for longer and cyclability and walkability. What's essential for that is public bathrooms. We really need that. So we need to sort of walk the talk when it comes to that, I would argue. Well, you know, you're striking a chord because we're getting texts rolling in from our listeners. You know, someone at the dog park, no bathroom, someone who's a a commercial driver and they won't let outside people use their bathrooms, even if you're desperate at this point. Uh, Someone saying, you know, encourage private companies to build toilets and charge people. Maybe the government Mm -hmm. could work on that, uh, though they say they would, of course, blow the whole thing if they were in charge of it but you're right i mean we had a a really fancy public toilet that they put in a a cool funky uh, neighborhood automated toilet and i i I believe it got trashed and then they closed it down so i mean who cleans them who looks after them i guess maybe is that the the question then yeah i mean that's that's a classic story that i hear all the time and that what's really happening there is that that toilet wasn't um that wasn't thought through because you can't just kind of plunk a toilet down and be like, okay, you know, somebody will pop back once a day to check on the paper. Like, that's just not how a bathroom works. A bathroom is a really kind of complex social space. It's a space where we do incredibly private things, but it's also public. There are spaces where where there needs to be um, a level of monitoring, but obviously people want to also have space away from others. So they are complex and they require a lot of thought. There's a small town in Nova Scotia called Lunenburg, um, which has this lovely on-street public bathroom. This is a small, small tourist town in Nova Scotia. But the municipality there built this built a building on its sort of main street. It's If everybody has seen a dime, they know the Blue Nose. It's right across from where the Blue Nose is. Um, and it's, it's open a lot. And it's also combined with a tourist information um, booth. And that kind of, you know, that you wouldn't call that monitoring a public toilet, but that kind of co-mingling of services mm-hmm. really helps, helps in terms of like, oh, it's not going to get trashed mm-hmm. or something. So I think that municipalities don't do a really great job of sort of thinking through the logistics of, of provision. They think like, oh, there's this you know, massive capital costs, which they don't want to spend. And then they, they suck it up, put the, put the toilet in at great expense, and then kind of don't do all the necessary stuff afterward to make it usable. It's, uh, it's a topic that isn't going to yeah. go away anytime soon. The textures are, no. the, it's coming in like crazy. So obviously, yeah. yeah, you're right. It's something that people have thought about and it's, it's sure. yeah, got to do something about it. And where can we pick up your book, Leslie? It should be available at any bookstore. It's uh, no place to go how public toilets fail our private needs. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Anytime. That is author Leslie Lowell.